Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Oh, wow. Real restraint this week. Thank you. I'm Mariah Rose. Uh, How are you doing? You know, we're back. If you're listening to this in the future, uh, you won't maybe know, but right now we are back in quarantine. That's right. The governor shut it down, but we're going to do our best. We're going to keep plugging away because that's what we do. Yeah. So for those of you that are in a similar situation, I hope today brings you joy and happiness and a temporary release from all of your anguish. Yes. And if you need more release, uh, you can follow us on Patreon. A new episode dropped uh, last week and another one's going to drop this week. That's right. The new Rapid Fire came out last week and this week's going to be the new Chill Factor. So get on it if you want to be in the party. Otherwise, you lose it. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of rude. You know. (laughs) Why not? Guilt and shame people. We have quarantine times. That's right. We've got nothing better to do. Well, welcome to Laser Graves. If you're a first-time listener, this is a podcast about the 80s where we discuss, you guessed it, 80s stuff. Oh. (laughs) And this week we are coming at you with a pretty awesome 80s movie. But before we get to that, Mm -hmm. you got a thrift store find of the week? I do. Okay. But I can't tell you. Why? It's a Christmas present. Oh, well, that's boring. Maybe you should have come up with something else to talk about this episode. Well, no, no. I'm super jazzed. Okay. I got you actually two things. They're stocking stuffers. I'm very proud. Okay. You're going to lose your beans. And I'm just teasing you with that information. Also, out in the desert, I found a chunk of wood that I'm going to paint on. So okay, take well, your pick. So win-win. Wow. <laughs> Thrilling. What did you find? This is what you can expect for the next couple of weeks now that we're quarantined again. Yes. I had a a pretty good week. I found the book for a previous episode we have done. So go back and listen to it if you haven't. It's one of my favorite films. Yeah. What else have you got to do? You're quarantined. (laughs) Right. But we did the movie She, which is an awesome film. Mm -hmm. It's like a post-apocalyptic sword and sorcery film. But it is based on a 19th century book called She. And so I found a a modern reproduction (laughs) of it. (laughs) What are they doing in the 19th century? Oh, my goodness. Writing awesome books. (laughs) I found that book. And then I found the Vesteron VHS copy of the 1989 horror thriller starring Gary Busey, Hider in the House, which we have not covered yet. Uh, I don't even think I've seen it. Yeah, we're going to have to do that one at some point. But if Maybe. you know the cover, it's hilarious because it's Gary Busey peering through a, a window at night to an unsuspecting woman. <laughs> uh, it's so good. But it reminds me of when we lived in Montana going to college. I was in this short, very short-lived indie rock band that was super fun. We were just kind of lighthearted indie rock. And uh, I played drums and it was with... My friends, Paul and Sarah, who we went on to have a really nice band with, and then our other friend, Jesse, who has since passed away, sadly. But we all had a band called Scary Busey. That's great. <laughs> but where did the name come from? I think Jesse created it. I think he came he up with the idea. With yeah, he just thought it was funny, and we all thought it was hilarious. So all of our, our flyers for our, our shows would have images of Gary Busey on it. 
that's perfect. Oh, that was good times. Good oh, wasn't times. it great to just be in your early 20s and not care, or oh, make good choices or yeah. any of it? Anyway, that's the finds that I had this week. Not too bad, actually. And honestly, like, you're cut off now. We can't go to thrift stores. So you're going to have to come out with me wandering through the desert. <laughs> that's right. Searching for our secondhand treasures. I may cheat a little because what? when we found out that we were getting shut back down, I ran out one more time today because this would be the final day we could thrift, and I actually got a really awesome you score, <laughs> so I'm going to save it till next week. Okay. So that's one less week I have to, to scurry in the desert for something. Okay, well, if you didn't see the title of this week's episode... We gave you advance notice last week. Yeah, you knew we were going to do this. We said we were doing Heathers, so if you second-guessed us, I don't know why you would even think we would say we'd do something and then not do it. Yeah, you thought we were pulling, like, a golden child or something. Yeah, or a teen witch in your face, listeners. Suck it. Yeah, we're keeping you on your toes. Yep. So, duh. We said we'd do Heathers, so we're doing Heathers. Here we are. Here we are. We've done Heathers. (laughs) End of story. Good night. Do you know anybody named Heather before we get started? Yeah, I knew kind of various Heathers growing up, especially the, that was an 80s name. So It was. It was well, definitely th- a middle school name, too. I think it was more of a 70s name with a little 80s carryover. Okay. Because well, it was yeah. like the teens of the 80s. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, did you? Is that why you were asking? I think everybody in the 80s knew Heathers. Okay. I was just, I was just wondering. <laughs> okay. Oh, I thought that was going somewhere. No. Wow. Really? It's, just Heather is the Nevea of the 1970s and 80s. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good story, Mariah. Thank you. That was like the coyote fake tunnel where I just ran into a wall thinking I was going somewhere really, really interesting. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. I knew somebody named Heather, and she was sometimes my friend, and sometimes my parents hired her to babysit me. It was very confusing. Okay, well, now that we've wrapped up the history of Heathers in our life, let's get to the movie. Heathers, 1989. This is an f- awesome movie. When did oh, you yeah. first see this? I think high school. Again, sheltered childhood. Wouldn't have seen it till high school. Yeah, this is just a really cool movie. I don't... I mean, every time I watch it, I love it. I've never once watched it and been like, oh, okay. I actually think I appreciate it more the older I get. Did you first see it when you were a baby? Yeah, I think I was a toddler, actually. (laughs) (laughs) A girl down the street named Heather showed it to me. (laughs) I think I saw it in high school, too. I'm sure I did. But I've seen it many, many times over the years. We have the New World copy, which is a really cool cover. It's been re-released a lot, actually, but... Yeah, because it's like a major cult phenomenon. It is. It really is. So it came out in 1989. This is the tail end of the 80s. Yep. Hanging on to dear life before we have to venture into the stupid early 90s, but... What? No, we're far enough removed from the 90s that they're cool now. Portions of it are cool. No, the 90s are cool now, and the early 2000s are dumb. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Let's let's get off the hate train for the 90s, and that just the next station stop is the early 2000s. All you have to do is think about women's pants in the <laughs> early 2000s. Not the 90s? No, the 90s were just like... <laughs> High-waisted Monica from Friends pants. That's fine. I would much prefer that to the, like... Uh, like just barely above the crotch, but with like lacing and then the whale tails. Oh, you're, you're thinking uh, like Early. black eyed peas pants. 
Yeah, or Christina Aguilera. Well, sorry, Ooh, X-Tina. X-Tina. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I gotcha. She's um, no longer a genie yeah. in the bottle. Her whale tail's free. Yeah, I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Thank you. Okay, Heather's 1989. This was directed by Michael Lehman. This was his debut film, his very first film. He went on to do a bunch of things like Hudson Hawk and Airheads. And the one I saved yeah. for you. What? Very special. Even more than Airheads for you. What? My Giant. <laughs> oh, that's our movie. That is our movie. That's like our wedding song, but in movie form. <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who are just dropping in, the first night that Eric and I like hung out and we weren't officially dating, I was watching a movie with my friend and my mom. And my mom, for whatever reason, asked my friend and I to go to Hastings, which is a, a movie rental place, to rent My Giant and we were apparently on board with watching My Giant. So we ran to Hastings, grabbed the movie, and you were there. And we invited you, and you said yes. Yeah, and so I, you watched My Giant with with our mutual friend and my mother and I. <laughs> I came expecting it to be Andre the Giant. Was deeply disappointed, but I stayed. I stayed. Billy Crystal and some tall guy. <laughs> <laughs> Directed by Michael Lehman, who also did Heather's. Uh, you know, what's funny is that we've already told that story, mm-hmm. and instead of cutting that out, we're leaving it in for new listeners, but also so that old listeners can go, oh, I've heard this one before, yeah. and feel like we're all in one one party together. You're part of the fabric of our lives. <laughs> yeah, you're part of the Laser Graves quilt. Thank you. Welcome. I hope you're warm. Oh, my goodness. So it was composed by David Newman. He did Critters, Bill and Ted. He, Excellent. He did a ton of stuff. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> And then it was written by Daniel Waters, who we will spend a lot of time on because this is really his film. But this was also his first film. So he and Michael, the director, they were kind of in it together. Mm -hmm. Very similar to our Pee-wee episode with Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I thought that was Tim Burton and Paul Rubin's first feature together. So I kind of like that when we get these stories of of people, you know, kind of trying it. And Danny Elfman too, right? For Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So after this, though, he went on to do some some pretty cool stuff. He wrote Batman Returns, speaking of Tim ah. Burton. Yeah. Which is my favorite Batman movie. He also did Demolition Man. Oh. <laughs> is that the one with a shell? Yes. And I was reading, so I was reading a ton of interviews this week uh, with him, does, with Daniel. Does he explain the shells? He does. For, for wiping? Yes. Oh. That's what I was getting to. I'm so well, excited. Well, pray tell. I know, yeah. I was like, well, this has... I have no reason to tell this, but now I do, so thanks. Cause I, I need to know. For some reason, retained this in my brain. As I was reading interviews with him, the mention of the shells for Demolition Man came up. <laughs> which, if you don't know what we're talking about, I'm not going to give it away. You'll figure it out. But he said it came about because he was talking to a friend, and his friend was in the bathroom... Mm-hmm. And he asked what was in the bathroom at the time. And some, his friend said like a, a bucket of shells or a basket of shells. And that's where he got the idea to oh, use shells. Well, so there you go. How many bathrooms have you been into where people are like, there's water here. I'm going to put shells. There's always like a beach theme, especially yeah. in um, middle-aged women's bathrooms. You notice Why that? Why is that? I don't know. They always have scented candles and beach themes. I mean, scented candles make sense. I guess. Anyway, anyway so yeah, written by Daniel Waters. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time on him throughout, but I might as well just get to his story because that's why Heather's is 
you know, came to be was because of him. Mm-hmm. He wrote this when he was in his early 20s, like 22, maybe. Which is... It makes sense because the high school experience is fairly authentic. So yeah, he wasn't not too far removed. Exactly. I thought that, too. Um, I, so I thought that was neat. He was working at a video store at the time. He developed this script with the thought of what if Stanley Kubrick wrote a teenager movie? <laughs> I did read somewhere in all of the trivia I was reading that his his first, like, hope for a director was Kubrick. He tried to get him to read the script and everything. Oh, my goodness. So he was basically, like, anti-John Hughes films. He he liked John Hughes movies, but he thought that the parents were always at fault. The teen was never at fault, even when they were at fault. And Mm -hmm. everything was just kind of convoluted and twisted and so he wanted he really did create this intention of a darker story of the high school experience that was more based on his younger sister's experience in high school not his own Mm, but he did have this idea when he was writing it of of a kubrick style like more of a darker approach to things um and then a satirical more dr strangelove style too especially the ending but that was his inspiration which is really Kind of interesting, but he was also a film school nerd, so it would have made sense that he was all into that stuff. Also, the dialogue that we see throughout this movie is very much John Hughes. That's one thing that's always bugged me about John Hughes, is because the teenagers talk like writers. Mm -hmm. You know, they've always got some, like, quip. And that's the same with this. They're all really salty, really quick on the uptake. But teenagers, when they talk to each other, like, Duh, duh, yeah. Yeah. back and forth. <laughs> I So in his interview, one of the interviews, he did say he was giving himself credit for creating the, the notion that teens from here on out in movies really had more adult dialogue. They were real quick-witted. They always had the right comebacks and stuff like that. Ah, yes, like every teenager you've ever known. Yeah, which they do in this movie. But I, yeah, I would also argue that this wasn't the first movie to have that. However... Yeah. It was intentional in this script that he did want them to... He really gave it a lot of thought that mm-hmm. he didn't want them to just say something stupid. He wanted them to all have like a clever, witty comeback. Mm-hmm. But that it... He felt that that then created a template that from here on out, all teens in movies had to have like a maturity to their comebacks. And Sorry, John Hughes did that first. <laughs> I think many films did that yeah. first. But this maybe just did it in a way that was more enjoyable and mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and worked better with the with For the story. Sure. So he tried to shop it around to Kubrick. That didn't work out. <laughs> but there was a lot of interest. So he really did know he had something special. Yeah. And it ended up landing in the hands of newcomer Michael Lehman, like we said. And he felt like he was a, capable enough. He needed to kind of warm up to him because he didn't know if he was going to get the the feel of the script or not. But... They seem to work really well together because they went on to do Hudson Hawk right after this, too. So they did really build a relationship, but it took a little bit of getting to know each other. And they found that they had a really similar sense of humor. And it allowed them to work on this script really well. Nice. It was originally a huge, like, three-hour movie. And he cut it way down to, you know. Yep. I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I think that was probably a good idea. Yeah, so I think the film was shot over about a month, and I, I have no idea what the normal amount of time for filming a movie is. Do you know? Yes, yeah, a couple months would be max, so I think that's a decent time. Unless you're making Lord of the Rings, then it's 14,000 <laughs> years. I don't know. 
So yeah, our film starts with, and we're we're actually not going to run through the full cast here because it's a huge cast. There are so many people in this film. I didn't really think about it until I started researching, but there are so many people credited yeah. in this film. It's, it's crazy. Great cast. Absolutely, but of course, Veronica, our lead, is played by Winona Ryder. Yes. <laughs> uh, which is absolutely delightful. She plays it perfectly, and I love to uh, look up who might have been cast for the role or who had been originally intended to play the character or whatever. And for the role of Veronica, it was originally supposed to be uh, Jennifer Connelly. Mm -hmm. But also Justine Bateman was considered for the part. And both women turned it down. That's interesting because I read that uh, Daniel Waters had Jennifer Connelly in mind as he was writing the script Mm. because he had a crush on her after watching Labyrinth. Who doesn't? (laughs) Those eyebrows are magic. (laughs) Those theatrical chops, the (laughs) theater major in full force. Yeah. Yeah. How could you not be attracted to that? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so that doesn't surprise me that Jennifer Connelly was considered... Yeah, absolutely. But eventually the role fell to Winona Ryder. And she had been acting for a while. She's actually a Minnesotan transplanted into California. But she had, at this point, been working fairly steadily. And the year before, as you know, she had filmed Beetlejuice. Yeah, I read in an interview with him that he didn't know who she was because Beetlejuice had not come out yet. It had just been filmed, but it hadn't been released yet. So when she got recommended, and when she got recommended, she didn't have the black hair at the time. Yeah. So she uh, did not seem like the ideal candidate. And then he was very much wrong. And I guess he jokes that she's never let him forget that. And Uh that when she ran into Jennifer Connelly at a party years later was like teasing how you know she was supposed to have the role and stuff. oh interesting yeah. yeah so she did get this role and you're right she's actually a, a natural blonde but she's a natural blonde i, I mean like me like a dark blonde but yeah oh i always think of her when i think blonde uh edward scissorhands and how awkward that looks mm, that is too blonde <laughs> that's that's not a natural blonde but anyway she did take this role i guess her agent or somebody who was advising her said, do not take this role and actually got on their hands and knees and like begged her not to take the role. What? That's so dumb. Isn't that ridiculous? Man, but theater majors run abound in Hollywood. <laughs> I guess. So anyway. Agents, she... what do they know? They're like the, the 80s version of pollsters now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know anything. Okay. They're like the weatherman. They just look outside and say, oh, it looks like it's about to rain. Pay me. <laughs> So Veronica, played by Winona Ryder, is, and we're definitely not going to hold your hand through this movie. You've seen it. We know that. But if you haven't, because I was surprised that a lot of people actually haven't. What? Yeah. If you haven't, I highly recommend it because we'll talk about it at the end. But, you know, if you don't want a spoiler right now. Stop it and go watch it and then come back to it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. If you haven't seen it, it's your lucky day. Turn this podcast off. <laughs> go watch it. Please come back. Yes. Okay. Hooray for you. I just you. wanted to put that out there because okay. I don't know if everybody's seen it. Really? Yeah. I just feel like it's like The Princess Bride. Everybody's seen it. I'm always surprised when we do films on here that we think are like blockbusters. And then I get messages that, you know, people had never seen it. Like Mannequin. 
a lot of people had never seen Mannequin. What? And I thought, well, how could you not have seen that? But I mean, like, if you're born in, like, 1998, maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I still feel like you have to. Whatever. Okay, so Veronica is played by Winona Ryder, and she is the only non-Heather in a group of Heathers. So she has three friends, Heather McNamara, Heather Chandler, and Heather Duke. Right. So that's where we get our title, Heathers. The Heathers are played by Heather Chandler. She's like the queen bee of the whole school. She is played by Kim Walker, who she acted in, you know, just kind of random stuff that, I mean, you can go look up her IMDb. But most interestingly, at one point in the film, one Heather says to the to another, did you eat a brain tumor for breakfast? Which is a really gross and weird thing to say, but in context it works. Interestingly, though, Kim Walker died of a brain tumor. What? In 2001. How weird is that? That's pretty bizarre. If that's like your catchphrase and then you die from it, that's <laughs> strange. Anyway, Heather McNamara is played by Lizanne Falk. She's like the cheerleader Heather. She was a childhood model and actually had like a book done on her following her through her modeling career. Uh, and But most importantly, she's in, uh, the, on the cover of a Foreigner album called Head Games. Okay. So, All right. That's her claim to fame beyond Heather's? Well, I mean, she did other stuff, but All right. let's well, go with that. Way to go. And then Heather Duke is played by Shannon Doherty. Okay. Yeah. Well, we know her. Yes. And this was pre-Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, okay. Uh, it's said that this kind of helped get her that role. It is. I yeah. actually did come across that when I was reading stuff that, what's her name? Uh, Tori mm-hmm. Spelling. Mm-hmm. Her dad was the producer. of Aaron Spelling. Right. Aaron Spelling. Tori was a huge fan of Heather's and really liked her performance in this and recommended her to be in 90210. That's how she got the job. That's so weird how life works that way. <laughs> right. Also, side note, I cannot break... Tori Spelling and Tori Amos in my mind. What? Would you like to know why? Okay, why? Because the last name Spelling and why can't Tori read? Whoa, <laughs> deep cut. Oh, wow. For fans only. Oh, okay. Wow. okay. So Shannon Doherty had been acting since she was 10, but this was like her first really big role. She was 17. And there's a lot of trivia out there about her like not feeling comfortable with a lot of the uh, profanity she had to say. Yeah, she was super sheltered. For sure. I guess. She was living in California and working in film since she was 10, so she can't have been that sheltered. I feel like that's a little inflated. Okay. (laughs) Whatever tells a good story. Well, think about childhood actors or child actors in the 80s. Somebody else was offered the role and had to turn it down because, uh, oh, Heather Graham, I think, was offered the role. And their mom said, you can't be in it. She was supposed to play Lizanne Falk, uh, Heather McNamara, the cheerleader one. So she was supposed to do that. She was 17 and her mom was not like cool with the, you know, the content, which is funny considering what Heather Graham went on to do with her career. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, what's interesting, too, is Winona Ryder was 16 at the time that she was making this. It's weird when I read about this, how many actors turned it down or were told not to do it because of the subject matter. Because, I mean, obviously, if you've seen this, it it really was 
really dark. It's yeah. And it was going to be even darker. We'll get to the original ending. Yeah. yeah. We get there, but it is a very dark movie. So to think of who actually finally signed on and now get to kind of have that claim for years on, on end is this was really this really did become a cult classic. And I wonder about the people who passed on it voluntarily if they look back and go, oh man, that would have been really cool. Or maybe they're like, well, that was really dark and I'm glad not to be That's associated yeah, with it. Depends on the person's brand. So Veronica, friends with the Heathers, the Heathers rule the school and they're like typical, I mean, Mean Girls was inspired by this. You yeah, know, they're just, the plastics if you've seen Mean Girls. Absolutely. But Veronica, you can tell she's a little different than the Heathers. And they're doing like a lunchtime cafeteria survey and Veronica spots JD. <laughs> JD. Oh my this gosh. This is a very, very young Christian Slater in yes. his prime. This is the same year as Gleaming the Cube. This is his breakout. Yeah, this, this is, is it. His, this is his year. He's actually the son of an actor and a casting agent. So he was made for this. And he, he's. Yeah, he had it all working at his. And he went on right after this to do like you know, pump up the volume and cuffs mm-hmm. and all that. I mean, he really exploded after this. Yes, absolutely. And do you want to know who else was considered for this role? Who? Well, obviously Brad Pitt. He's <laughs> talked about... Why is Brad Pitt considered for every single movie? What's t- not to consider? But also, he and Brad Pitt went head-to-head for the role in Thelma and Louise and Brad Pitt beat him. That's funny. You know, It's funny, too, how many times Brad Pitt gets up Mm -hmm. for a role and then is passed because he's either like too good looking or something like that it's really funny well this one they said he seemed too nice so okay um also jim carrey judd nelson and jason bateman as well as johnny depp their names were bandied about but i don't really know how serious any of these people were it was a cesspool back then wasn't it it's all the like they're just missing river phoenix (laughs) it's like being in a local band yeah where every member has been in every other member's band at some point i know it's all incestual that's how it is in hollywood for sure and i think that's probably why they went with christian slater they're like eh eh seen him seen him seen him let's go with this guy that we haven't seen so much of because he'd been doing stuff on like broadway as a child actor and just weird stuff out in california so nothing big yeah daniel waters was not a fan of his when he first met him he didn't think that that was a good fit Mm mm-hmm and then quickly changed his tune and, and did like him. And it's funny because the criticism that Christian Slater got right away with this is that he's trying to act like Jack Nicholson, which, duh. Yes. And he says outright, I was trying to act like Jack Nicholson. So he's doing the a whole film is him acting as Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because Daniel was like, he wasn't. That's just how he talks in real life. Mm-hmm. I'm like... Dude, open your eyes. He is totally doing a Jack Nicholson impression. Do you think his life is a Jack Nicholson impression? I think it came out strong at the beginning, and then I think he slowly eased up. Okay. But he's always done the Jack Nicholson thing. I don't know, but it kind of works for him. Have you seen Leonardo DiCaprio do Jack Nicholson? No. Oh. He does an impression of Jack Nicholson? It's it's all in the forehead and eyebrows, and it's, it's perfection. So I would like to see a Jack Nicholson off between... Christian Slater and Leo DiCaprio. Okay. Let's make it happen. <laughs> That'd be funny. I heard that uh, Christian Slater tried to get Jack Nicholson to watch this movie and he didn't. Mm-hmm. 
He wrote him a note and just never got a response. <laughs> <laughs> oh, young actors. Christian Slater was like, what, 18, 19, something like that? I don't know. Young. He looks really young in this. He's a little baby. He does. Yeah, he he looks very young, but I don't actually know how And like I said, this same year as Gleaming the Cube, one of my favorite movies growing up. So I thought he was the bee's knees at this time. Then he kind of progressively went downhill after that. But, you know, he went on, like I said, cuffs and pump up the volume and young guns. I mean, all that. I mean, he have you seen him lately? He's a glory for that guy's career. He looks OK. He aged, now, he aged pretty well. I saw him most recently in uh, Mr. Robot. Remember? Oh, yeah. He was great in that. He, was he the dad? I don't want to give it away if nobody's seen it. So anyway, we start unfolding our high school situation. We have the Heathers who rule the school. Veronica, who's a little, like, uh, on the edge of it. She doesn't really want to be part of this group, but she doesn't see an alternative. Also, we learn through Veronica's words alone that she's a baby genius and is just somehow surviving through high school because she's so very brilliant. She's got a diary that she writes in you know, which is very much not only Mean Girls, like you said, also another one that fits in this category that I love, we, you know, we're huge fans of, is Jawbreaker mm. with Rose McGowan. Uh, that's what a cool film that is. Yeah. And that's same in the same kind of category of these high school kind of click movies. So the diary scene is kind of an essential as far as creating the formula for the genre. Yeah. So Veronica ends up going to like a college party with uh, Heather Chandler. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of like her test or something. I don't really know why it was so important. But Heather Chandler really thought it was a big deal that Veronica go and act normal. But Veronica doesn't feel interested in being date raped by drunken college dudes and ends up getting drunk and puking. <laughs> and it's kind of like a, a pivotal moment in this scene because it's a break between Heather Chandler and Veronica. Yeah, there's a lot of really heavy subject matter in this film from bulimia to date rape to, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, and there are these scenes in there that, you, that we get. It's very interesting because they cover the full spectrum of the darker side of high school life and not the not the fun side. And so we're seeing Veronica's kind of getting the insider's view of this, of the popular kids in the worst possible situations doing anything it takes to be popular. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. They do just sort of casually like make jokes about bulimia and stuff like that it's a dark film it's a it's, really dark it's film. very dark uh, and i think that so many of those issues are almost more relevant than perhaps the author the writer knew that they were at the time and we'll kind of touch on that as we go along but we also should probably mention there's a character whose name is martha what is it dunstock oh yeah Dump truck. And they call her Martha Dump Truck. She's overweight, and she's sort of like everybody. Mm -hmm. She is the character that I think most of us can go, ah, yeah. I yeah. know what she feels like. There's, She's like the focus of empathy for this whole film. Yeah, she's just the punching bag for the popular kids. Mm -hmm. And I think she's a person that we've all felt like at some point, but she actually only has 
one line in the whole movie. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> but she's throughout the whole movie. She's like the thread that ties it all together. It's really interesting. Yeah, and her story is, is really dark as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because if you haven't seen this, that's what can be a turnoff to some people is like, oh, this is a little heavy subject matter. But mm-hmm. once you know the film and you watch it again, it's it gets more and more enjoyable. And then the dark humor starts to kind of even out with the heaviness of the drama. And yeah. then all of a sudden it becomes this really well-balanced dark humor uh, that is, is just really well done. Yeah, and I think that you hit it on the head there. It's that balance between like being funny and being like uncomfortable and making you think about what you're watching and what you're laughing at. And I think, especially if you had watched this during the 1980s when it came out, you would have thought, why am I laughing? Is this appropriate? And mm-hmm. I, th- I think that maybe far removed, that's a little bit lost on us. But at the time, I, I can see its value and its importance and why it was so pivotal. Yeah. And you know, one other thing that I thought was really, you know, we joked about the writer, you know, maybe giving himself a bit more credit for this film than than was deserved. But sometimes it does deserve the credit it gets because it, it was pushing the boundaries and it was oh, yeah, standing out. One of the areas that I really picked up on that I appreciate that we just take for granted now is Christian Slater's character, J.D., mm-hmm. who's this outcast misfit. He's moved around a lot because of his dad's shady business dealings. And, mm-hmm. you know, he wears a trench coat and he's always just getting into trouble. We find that he's just like a spoiled rich kid that's bored. And yeah. I thought that was really against stereotype because typically, not always, but typically the outcast or the misfit comes from like a really broken, troubled home where he's living in the trailer park and his alcoholic dad beats him every night. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's a Rob Zombie movie constantly with those kinds of guys. But he does have those problems. He does come from a broken home. He has a dead mother. He has all of the the makings for a troubled person, but he's rich. And I think that's a really important uh, distinction and, and way that it's separate because so often we see like the guy from the wrong side of the tracks or whatever but he isn't he's just a rich kid who is wrong in his head he's yeah. not from the wrong side of the that's tracks. what i liked and it's not even that he might be rich it's just that he's very comfortably middle class and he's doing just fine so it's not like he has that going for him and i liked that i liked that as you're watching this character make all these choices mm-hmm. it's that it shows that you can be troubled and disturbed from all walks of life yeah and that's something that in modern films really is is pretty normal now when we watch movies like it's yeah there's always the the wealthy rich kid that does really creepy weird Mm -hmm. things but i think in the 80s that maybe wasn't as common it broke from convention for sure and the character jd he is a reference to jd salinger of course but also james dean so he's got kind of a james dean attitude Uh, You know, he's like the rebel without a cause kind of situation. And that's what initially draws Veronica in. So after the awkward night at the Remington party, uh, Veronica meets up with JD and they decide they're going to teach Heather a lesson. And they break into her house the next morning. I mean, they just enter and... And Veronica wants to make her puke, too, like in retaliation for making her feel bad for puking at the party the Mm -hmm. night before. And she wants to mix uh, milk and orange orange juice juice to make her puke. Would that make you puke? No, not at all. I don't I think, think so. I feel like people drink that with with, with alcohol. Isn't that like the purpose of Orange Julius? <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Okay, whatever. <laughs> Is that still around? I don't know. Okay. She wants to do that, and JD jokingly, question mark, puts Drano in a cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she grabs it. And actually, this was something that on this viewing I caught for the first time. She grabs the cup accidentally, brings it up, Gives it to Heather, who's been asleep in bed in her, like, royalty bed. It's bonkers. It's, yeah, it's like funny. a very fancy bed. Gives it to her, and Heather drinks it, chokes on it, and dies. Or doesn't choke on it, but has her reaction and dies from drinking the Drano uh, that perhaps Veronica gave her by mistake. But Veronica instantly knows what has happened yeah but there was no indication on the way over that she had been informed that she actually had the poison yeah i caught that too yeah and it kind of throughout the film you're like okay so she's just willfully ignorant throughout this Mm -hmm. and i think that the character veronica is actually full of blame in this she isn't (laughs) willful willfully ignorant in any way yeah she it is weird that she just goes along with it because she seems highly intelligent she doesn't seem like somebody that would blindly just be attracted to somebody that's dysfunctional but she yeah but she is and the kill scene which is you know the moment of the film that sets Uh it all in motion is very much a jawbreaker moment too if you've seen that movie that idea where they do kill the lead and that's what sets the whole story into motion so it is interesting because from that moment on veronica is is part of this story now. She's not just seeing, she's not watching from the side. She's actively participating in the demise of this social elite group in, in high school. Yes. And when Heather and it's Heather Chandler, she is having her like death scene. She falls through a glass coffee table which is in her bedroom can you even imagine that in high school whatever (laughs) uh and on the table is a copy a cliff notes copy of the bell jar by sylvia plath who Mm -hmm. is basically famous for being a writer who committed suicide and a magazine with a cover story the fall of the american teenager (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah so careful placement there it's great so after heather dies there's a funeral and the funerals in this film get more and more surrealist as we progress but the minister at the funeral his name is father ripper which is a crazy name he is played by Glenn Shaddix, who you and I both instantly recognized. Yeah, and we had were to trying to stop place it. it. Yeah, we were like, wait a minute. And he's actually from Beetlejuice. That's funny. So they were both on set right before this on a different set. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's fantastic that that carryover works. I think fans probably would have really loved that, yeah. you know, one year to the next. They would have been like, hey, hey, yeah. they were both in Beetlejuice. Yeah, I like so that too. I thought sense. that was fun. After Heather's funeral, another Heather, played by Lizanne Falk, Heather McNamara, basically forces Veronica to take a double date with two jocks. And the jocks have made themselves known already as being obnoxious. And Veronica's like, as long as they don't make us go cow tipping. And Heather says, of course not, or whatever. And then the next scene is of the two jocks, drunk and cow tipping. Right. And these two jocks have been, from the very beginning of the film, a problem where, Mm -hmm. you know, they're constantly gay bashing everybody and they're just causing trouble. So they're, they're just horrible people that have been 
developing over the course of this story. And it's now getting to this point where not only have they been offending everybody and just being mean overall, now they're really drunk and deciding that they're going to just have their way with with anybody and everybody. Yeah. So they basically try to force Veronica and Heather to have sex. Veronica escapes and she like walks up a hillside where JD is creepily lurking. Yeah. And I guess she just accepts it. But interestingly, again, we learn Veronica's not this innocent or kind person. She leaves Heather to basically just be raped. Yeah, it's really dark. Yeah. And it's just something that you don't catch maybe the first time. But when you start to know the story and know what's happening, it's... It's awful. It is awful. Yeah. It's very awful. And then JD and Veronica sit down and have a little discussion about how they want to get revenge on these two jocks. They, there's this whole conversation. They make a plan about how they're going to have have it look like these two jocks have a gay relationship. They've decided to commit suicide. And he JD says, we'll shoot them with these bullets. And they're called Ich Lüge bullets. Which, in German, he just asks her if she speaks German. And she says she speaks French. Ich Luga means I'm lying or I lie. Right. Yeah. So he he's he's telling her they're I lie bullets, but what he's saying is he's gonna they're gonna kill the guys. Yeah, he's given her the impression that the bullets will just stun them, but mm-hmm. really he knows that they're gonna kill him. Also, one thing we failed to mention is right before this, when the lead Heather dies and it's staged as a suicide, it the the whole town and school rally around her as though she was this tortured soul. Yeah. And they almost start to elevate her status. Yes, from bully to martyr. Yeah, which is an ongoing sub-story for this whole film, mm-hmm. is about the power of suicide and the uh, glorifying suicide, which Daniel, the writer, mentioned as being very prevalent when he was considering the script mm-hmm. was... He was sick of, in the 80s, suicide was such a common topic that it was almost becoming newsworthy and glorified if somebody had committed suicide. So Mm -hmm. he wanted to exploit that in this film. Interesting. And also just like following the popular people. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. It was a way to get attention. They set it up and do it. And Veronica, this is kind of weird because she shoots generally at one of the guys in their setup and misses And she's like, yeah, whatever, and plays it off. So you kind of go, oh, so she didn't know that they were being horrible, evil people. Mm -hmm. She just was being a stupid teenager. But it's kind of a mixed bag, because I I feel a lot less sympathy for Veronica on this viewing than I ever have before. I had thought she was just kind of at the whims of JD. But if she's really that smart, she knew what was going on. Yeah. So I don't know. But and it ends up that both of the jocks are dead. And JD and Veronica have staged their suicide as like a, a gay suicide mm-hmm. because they couldn't come out because the world wasn't ready for their love. And this is interesting because actually that was a very high number of suicides that were happening in the 80s were uh, gay people because they were unable able to live their life openly interesting so this is a little ahead of its time yeah i don't i don't know that that was the intention but the statistically uh, that was an important number i think that's what also makes this 
stand out from a John Hughes film is John Hughes was very much kind of a, even when it was trying to be dramatic, it was still like a goofy Hollywood drama. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And then basically the rest of the film, Veronica gets mad at JD. She realizes he's just a killer or she decides she's realized he's just a killer and she wants to break from that. Mm-hmm. So they they break up as a couple, but he, meanwhile, is trying to set up the death of Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, and she's kind of rising up to become the new lead Heather. Right. And he has her copy of Moby Dick, which is weird. I don't know why she's reading Moby Dick. Actually, I do know why, and I'm going to tell you. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, when I watched it, I was like, why is she reading Moby Dick? That doesn't make any sense. Originally, uh, she was reading Catcher in the Rye. Of course, yeah. Uh, but the producers couldn't get permission from Salinger to use it. Of course, he wouldn't give permission. No. So they changed it to Moby Dick because it's public domain. Okay. Well, there so you they, go. They had... Problem solving. Yeah. So he was underlining meaningful passages from Moby Dick and getting ready to, you know, make her commit suicide as well. After that, uh, they ultimately, they've broken up and JD is, he's crossed over. He's going to go big or go home. Right. And this is where his dad's job comes into play. His dad is like a buildings demolition man. So... JD has some insight into how buildings are taken down. He has gotten Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, to get the students to sign a petition. They don't know what it's for, but really it's supposed to be like a mass suicide note from the entire school. JD wants to blow up the school, and Veronica, in the 11th hour, intervenes in the boiler room. Yeah, and it's interesting because... Keep in mind, this is pre-Columbine, but, you know, here's this guy, this disgruntled teenager who thinks that the world owes him everything and that he's better than everybody, has this weird convoluted vision that the only way you can be equal in high school is in heaven. Like, that's the only way that all walks of life in in school are, Mm -hmm. are an equal playing field as if they're all dead. So this is really interesting because he's walking around with a trench coat on and he wants to kill everybody at school. So it's pretty dark when you think about it because this was done at a time where this wasn't a reality yet. But I would think if you watched this for the first time post-Columbine, it would probably be a bit more disturbing because that's no longer fiction. It's reality. Absolutely. Especially now. It's very much reality. Actually, quarantine's been the only break from that. Yeah. No joke. He wants to blow up the whole school. So he's setting dynamite around. There's a pep rally going on right mm-hmm. now. And he's setting up dynamite everywhere. Like you said, he had gotten everybody to falsely sign this petition under the context of one thing. Then he removes the little piece of paper that reveals that it's actually a yeah, like a group manifesto that says we willingly want to die. And Veronica busts him in the boiler room with a gun. And he's thinking she's not going to do anything about it. And he, um, she takes aim and shoots his finger off, which is pretty awesome. That's gross, yeah. It's really gross. But he wraps it up and he, she runs out of the school thinking mm-hmm. that maybe he's, I don't know, dead, right? Is that what her thought was? I don't know. But he wanders out and he looks horrible. Yeah, he looks pretty bad. 
So does she. They have like a boiler room fight. But he instead has now strapped the dynamite to his chest. I think he also had that. I think it was always his plan to kill himself. And he walks out in front and he flips the switch and she just watches. This is a really, this is a really great ending. Honestly, I, I do like the ending. She just sits there and watches on the front steps of the school as he stands in front of her. She puts a cigarette in her mouth to light it with the explosion, which is so crazy. Which is interesting because earlier in the movie, we didn't talk about this, but when in all the commotion, she burns her hand. With a like cigarette lighter from a car. To try and like see if she's dreaming and he wastes no time by lighting his cigarette off the burn mark of her hand. So I kind of feel like this is a callback to that. Oh, for sure. So she's standing on the steps. He flips the switch. The countdown begins. And then it stops. And in any other movie, you would think, oh, this is where there's like redemption or something. Mm-hmm. But he fiddles with it. And then it starts counting down again. Goes to the pep rally. And they hear a large bang. And he just blew himself up. Yes. And it goes back out front. And there is Veronica... Looking like a WB, a Wile E. Coyote character, (laughs) smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And that's that for him. Man, what what a really dark ending. Yeah, it's bonkers. And Veronica goes back inside and she finds Martha Dump Truck, who also had tried and failed to commit suicide earlier, invites her to like have a movie night. She takes the... Heather, the original Heather is like headband off of Heather Duke. It's like a scrunchie, I guess, and puts it in her own hair. And it's supposed to be like the dawn of a new era at their high school. (laughs) Well, what we should probably discuss is that there were actually a couple other endings. Yeah, there were. Pitched. And I'm happy that they went with the ending they did, probably just because that's the ending I know. Yeah. But do you know both of them or do you just know one of them? Which ones do you know? Oh, well, I do know both of them. Why don't you tell me the one you know? Well, the one, there's one that's really cool, but the, the more common one is that Veronica actually is the one to blow herself up at the end. And then it's a very cheesy ending because the school does blow up. Mm-hmm. And then it's a prom scene in heaven where everybody is now equal because it was JD's vision mm-hmm. that that's where everybody could finally like be on an equal playing ground is in heaven and they're they're at prom. I thought that would have been a really corny ending. So I'm glad they didn't go with that one, but there was one more <laughs> that was even more disturbing. Go over it. In the other one, which Daniel really was a fan of, the writer, is that after he kills himself and she goes into the hall and meets up with Martha mm-hmm. and, you know, Martha's in her wheelchair still from trying to commit suicide. She's tying her hair around and she looks at Martha like she does and says, you know, do you want to catch a movie or something like that? And instead of the happy ending that we got where she's like, sure, Martha turns around, pulls out a knife, stabs her and Veronica falls down and then she falls out of her wheelchair And they're laying there together, kind of dying, basically, in some weird way, and start laughing and says something about being a Heather. And she's like, I'm not, you know, Heather, I'm Veronica. And it ends that way. Mm -hmm. What a weird, bizarre ending. I'm kind of glad they didn't go that route either. I'm glad they didn't go to the prom in heaven ending. That would have been really cheesy. Although the one thing about the whole 
I'm not a Heather, I'm a Veronica, which she says in the movie. I didn't know this, but that um, was the the basis for the band The Veronicas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And also, that is why I wanted to name one of our children Veronica, and you were like, no. And now I'm glad we didn't, now that I now realize that you don't like her? Veronica's kind of sucks. <laughs> You know, this went on to have some interesting things. A musical in 2014. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. No. Nah. And a TV show after that. Again, no, thank you. The musical, I think, had Kristen Bell in it. Oh, well, that's not a surprise. She gets around when it comes to musicals. <laughs> if you can, why not? But less important than that, because this was a flop. This is a cult classic for a reason. At a $3 million budget, came out March 31st, 1989, Flopped, barely made over one million, but then went on to become the iconic film it is and really gained steam pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But I am more interested in how it had a life after in pop culture films, like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Jawbreaker, Mean Girls. What do you think about that? Like, Oh, I love the it. basis for this. Yeah, I love it. And I think that it's, you know, you see it influencing these films, but the films that it has influenced are also influential in themselves. So it's like uh, dropping the stone into the lake and watching it echo across like time in cinema. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Actually, considering those films, uh-huh. you thought we were done, but I got this week's fun fact. What? <laughs> So this is pretty crazy. What? The younger brother of Daniel Waters that wrote Heather's. Uh-huh. His name is Mark Waters. Directed Mean Girls. What? <laughs> How crazy is that? That blew my mind. I know. I was like, well, this is like an actual fun fact. What? <laughs> I had no clue. Huh. Yeah. There you go. I wonder if he's mad because Mean Girls was way more successful. I don't know. Huh. He did just said he, he he joked and said he did uh, an updated version of Heather's but less violent. Huh. Yeah, basically. And did you know, have you heard about Heather's too? I heard that Winona was really pushing Daniel to do a sequel right after it came out. She really wanted a part two. And so he did do a treatment, but it never came to be. So he actually said in an interview, and this is a quote, I did come up with this crazy cockamamie Heathers 2 where Veronica becomes a page for a senator named Heather, played by Meryl Streep. (laughs) I mean, that's his dream of it. The ending is her assassinating the president and getting away with it, and it's a good thing. Winona writers actually supported the idea for a sequel, but as of, uh, you know, the last decade, nothing's actually come of it. <laughs> I could take it a step further because in another interview, he told that same story okay. and said not only was she like really pushing for it, she talked to Meryl Streep and got her on board. <laughs> and he also said, no, thanks. I don't want to do it. So it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, that's Heather's. I mean, definitely Laser Graves approved. I think it's yeah. a great movie. It's a really weird one, but it it's, holds a special place. It's darker. Every time you watch it, it gets a little bit darker, but also the humor gets a little bit smarter, maybe? Yeah, I was reading an interview with one of the Heathers, and she was saying, you know, they were all teenagers when they wrote this, except for one of them lied yeah. and was like 23 or something. Yeah. But they were all teens, so they were, you know the right time 
they said that it it just they didn't sit well with a lot of teens because I think it was maybe too too similar and that mm-hmm. as a lot of them have aged they've grown to appreciate it more yeah, the older you get and I th- I would agree with that I think I did like it as a teenager but I like it way more the older I get I think I can appreciate how forward thinking it was and how bold it was in Hollywood yeah. really I mean it does deserve that credit of being Absolutely. very bold it hurts too because you see them making fun of people who are different you know for their weight or their style or their sexual orientation and you can remember that Mm -hmm. from your high school experience and it's just it's just an ache that's so pure and i think that it's something that most of us either experienced or remember witnessing and it's it hits close to home yeah Great film. I mean, really great film. This was fun to do. I'm glad we got to it. We've talked about it for a while, but, (laughs) you know, not as long as some other movies we've talked about. But that is it for this week. Um, If you like what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us. We're anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. We're also at lasergraves.com where you can hear all of our back episodes. You can hear our fun secrets, top secret stuff on Patreon. That's right. We're on patreon.com slash lasergraves. A very small amount to sign up and get access to all of our dumb special episodes that we're having a lot of fun with. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, play catch up and get on that. And then if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Lasergraves and our personal sites. I'm at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose. And as always, go follow fellow podcasts and support all of us trying to bring you some free entertainment. So that's all we have for you this week. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.